for you. First Chronicles tonight, chapter 18. If you're with us this evening and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles right now. They have Bibles and just wave to them and get their attention. They'll get a Bible into your hands. On Sunday night should be fairly lost. We cover a little bit of territory and uh, with just listening without being able to follow along with your eyes. Sunday night through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and we pick things up this evening, First Chronicles chapter 18. And here in chapter 18, we have a summary of uh, David's wars that he fought and the expansion of the kingdom of Israel under his uh, reign. Most of these wars were fought. I think all of them were fought by virtue of Israel being attacked by, uh, you know, historic enemies of theirs or uh, of the nations surrounding them, God giving them favor and defeating their enemies. Uh, while being attacked, and then the the enlargement of uh, the, uh, the nation of Israel under David, and under David it reached its largest kind of geographical reach uh, in in its history. And after this, it came to pass that David attacked the Philistines and subdued them, and he took Gath, one of the leading cities of the Philistines, and its towns from the hand of the Philistines. And he defeated Moab. Moab is modern-day Jordan, down by the area of the Dead Sea. And the Moabites became David's servants and brought tribute. And so they became kind of an, um, an extension of the territory of Israel. Not Israel proper, but uh, kind of a, a subservient uh, people. And, and their bringing tribute or paying taxes to uh, Israel was kind of a, uh, you know, indicated that that was uh, the, the, the state that they were in. And David defeated Hadadezer, king of Zobah, as far as Hamath. Uh, he went to establish his power by the river Euphrates. So we get an idea of how far the reach of David's uh, reign was at that time, uh, all the way to the river Euphrates. And David took from him 1,000 chariots, 7,000 horsemen, 20,000 foot soldiers, and David hamstrung all the chariot horses except that he spared enough for 100 chariots. And when the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadad, Ezer, the king of Zobah, uh, to fight against uh, David, uh, looking to, you know, knock them down and, and to destroy Israel and its army, uh, David then uh, uh, killed 22,000 of the Syrians. These are, you know, very large casualty numbers related to these battles. This is just death. This is not wounded. And all of this occurring at very, very close quarters. And so um, this defeat of the Syrians, and as a result of the defeat, David put garrisons in Syria of Damascus. That became kind of an extension of the kingdom of Israel at that time. And the Syrians became David's servants, and they brought tribute. And so the Lord preserved David everywhere he went. This was the key to David's success, was God's favor upon his life and his obedience to the Lord. David will forget that and pay a price for that. And perhaps we'll get to that this evening. David then took the shields of gold that were on the servants of Hadad Ezer, and uh, he brought them to Jerusalem, and also from uh, Thibhath and from Chun, cities of Hadad Ezer, David brought large amounts of bronze, with which Solomon, his son, made the bronze sea, the pillars, and the articles of bronze associated with the temple that Solomon would build. And so David, uh, in all of these victories, he didn't look at this and say, well, all, all of this wealth, all of this material goods that uh, came into Israel as a result of these defeats, he didn't line his own pockets with that. David was a simple man, but he brought these into the treasuries, and as we'll see, a little bit later this evening, this uh, this wealth was put aside in order to provide what was necessary to ultimately build the temple. And so uh, and all of the furnishings associated with it. And here we're told that Solomon made use of, of the, the bronze here, as well as other things we'll see later in order to accomplish that. And when uh, Tohu, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated all the army of Hadadezer, king of Zobah, he sent Hadoram, his son, to King David, to greet him, to bless him, kiss him on both cheeks, 
uh, because he had fought against Hadad-Ezer and defeated him earlier. For Hadad-Ezer, it had been a war with Tohu and uh, Hadaram brought with him all kinds of articles of gold, silver, and bronze. And so these two men had been at war with one another. Um, it appears that Tohu had to then fight another front at that particular point in time. He was vulnerable to another attack by Hadad-Ezer. David uh, was brought into this battle against Hadad-Ezer by his aggression and uh, took and defeated him. And so Tohu was very, very thankful for that, rewarded David with all kinds of uh, material wealth, gold, silver, and bronze, all of which will be accumulated for the building of the temple. And David also dedicated all of this wealth to the Lord. That was his way of acknowledging that these battles had not been won on the basis of his own skill or his own abilities or his own bravery or his own, his own, his own, his own, but that God had given him, him these victories. And so he acknowledged that by de- dedicating this captured wealth to the Lord along with the silver and gold which he had brought from all these nations, from Edom, from Moab, from the people of Ammon, from the Philistines, and from Amalek. And moreover, uh, uh, Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, he killed 18,000 Edomites. This was one of David's generals in a battle against the people of Edom. 18,000 killed, location of the battle in the Valley of Salt. And he put garrisons in Edom, uh, and all the Edomites became David's servants, and the Lord preserved David wherever he went. And so David reigned over all of Israel, and he administered justice, uh, judgment and justice to all his people. And, um, and because this kingdom of his is expanding dramatically, uh, he needs to formalize the government a little bit. Under um, King uh, Saul, who was the first king of Israel before him, it was just very haphazard. There was Saul and no other structure uh, for governing the land at all. It was all about Saul. He didn't care about justice and all of these other kind of things. It, he, was just, well, he was just off. And uh, but David comes in and he realizes, all right, we need to do things decently and in order. And so he comes in and he establishes uh, some form to the government of Israel. And here we have a listing of his cabinet. Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was over the army. So this was his uh, military chief, Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was the recorder. So he would kind of be the chief of staff. Uh, we would call that on, on, a, uh, on a cabinet member for the United States of America for a president. Zadok, the son of Ahitub, and Abimelech, the son of Abiathar, they were the priests. It's interesting and wonderful to realize that David loaded spiritual. All of these were spiritual men, Joab, a little iffy. But uh, he made sure that he had a couple of priests on this cabinet for the mind of the Lord to be a part of uh, the decision-making as well. And uh, uh, Shavsha was the scribe who was uh, kind of the, uh, uh, would keep a record of uh, the administrative record of all the decisions that were made. And then Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was over the Cherethites and the Pelethites, and David's sons were chief ministers at the king's table. And so this was uh, kind of the his cabinet, the formal development of an administrative organizational structure for Israel. When it mentions these guys, uh, the uh, Cherethites and the Pelethites, in the, in the ancient world, but even in the not-so-ancient world, even up into, uh, I know it was certainly uh, in place, and probably some of you are better educated on it, would say, could say definitively that it's in place today, but I know all the way into World War I era, that when you had someone who was a king in the Middle East, because uh, there was so much uh, intrigue and so much treachery that would go on and people overthrowing, uh, you know, deceit and overthrowing the king and all, that very often a ruler would uh, establish their bodyguard uh, from very, very brave members of other tribes of other nations. And he would simply hire his own bodyguards because he couldn't trust 
the leaders around him. David was no exception. Uh, Absalom uh, ultimately leads a rebellion against him and David and his family barely escape with their life. And so this is the same old thing that's gone on all through history. And David had identified these men as men who were loyal with him. They'd been with him a long time. And they were a part of kind of his secret service and looking out for protecting um, his life. One of the things that's fascinating to me about all of this, and I, um, I mentioned it before, but I think it bears repeating in the current, current climate of our nation and, and of the world. Um, I notice how amazingly lean the government was under David. We have very few uh, positions in that cabinet. There's no czars, uh, just members of the, of the cabinet. It's a very, very lean, lean government. And the reason that they got away with so lean a government and so lean a um, organizational structure, government intrusion, taxation, was because the nation of Israel was a theocracy. It, it had at its base, not everybody obeyed the Lord. So, I mean, you read David's Psalms that he wrote during his lifetime, and we, we read about David's life and we think that it was like going to spiritual Disneyland. Everybody walked with God and they clicked their heels and were happy to do so every morning. It wasn't like that. David walked with God. A lot of people walked with God. But David spoke continually of his enemies, those who were after his life, those who rejoiced in, in anything that bad that happened to him. He wrote about the unrighteous within Israel itself. And so there was, uh, you know, there were these kind of problems that were going on. But in general, it was acknowledged that the law of the land was the law of Moses. And everybody understood that right and wrong was defined by the Ten Commandments. And then the practical elaboration or application of the law of Moses in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. And so when you have a group of people who are in agreement on what is right and wrong, Based upon God's word, you can have a lean government. It is only when a nation moves away from God's definitions of right and wrong that now you have to load up with unbelievable number of laws uh, that would have normally been taken care of if the people were being raised under the moral base of the scriptures. And so you see how we have today. I mean... You can't even keep track of the number of laws that are being enacted all over the nation. Don't do this. Do this. Don't do that. Don't do that. And you look at half of them, you say, that's common sense. People ought to be ashamed to do that. But shame is gone because the the ebb of the influence of the word of God within our culture, the definition of right and wrong coming from the word of God, that's continuing to recede within our culture. And as it recedes, you have to add laws to do in people's lives what that automatically and naturally did in their life. And so you see the enlargement, the enlargement, the enlargement of laws, the infringement on personal freedom, the enlargement of government because of a jettisoning of a Christian heritage within this nation. And it won't turn around. We look at this, the Bible says that righteousness exalts a nation. And that's the truth. I'll tell you, unrighteousness will bankrupt a nation. And we're watching it before our very eyes. I was talking with a woman the other day, and uh, she's a school teacher. And I don't need to tell you what school teachers are facing with the budget cuts, not only on national level, but acutely on the state level, what they're facing. She teaches kindergarten, has taught kindergarten for seven years. And she's seen her class size go now with budget cuts from 22 to she's well over 30 now. This, I mean, that's already a job of herding cats, five-year-olds. But she has, she has a 22 in the class. So she has a job. This is what she's got to do with those kids. Her job is they come in not knowing how to read. And by the end of the year, they got to leave that classroom knowing how to read. You're talking about one of the most pivotal years in the education of a child. And she's not going to be able to do the job that she could do. And so she was talking with me and 
uh, that she wants to do. And so she was talking with me and she brought up the classic kind of illustration related to that. I'm very sympathetic to everything that she was saying. And she was talking about how come in this state, you know, we can pour all this money into building prisons. Pretty soon the prisons are going to want more money than public education and all. And I listened to all of that. I understand exactly what she's saying. The fascinating thing to me, it's almost poetic justice. If you're a teacher, don't walk out on me. Wait, let me finish. I'm not talking about individual teachers. I'm not talking about individual uh, administrators and employees in public education. But you can hardly find a segment of the government that has been more insensitive to a biblical standard of right and wrong and the teaching of the word of God and the exposure of children to that moral code than public education in the last 40 years. And so here is this thing where you've got the evolution going on. You can't get a voice. It's a theory of evolution. You can't get a voice for God in those schools. And I know it's different depending on communities and schools and administrators and all that kind of thing. But even in our own community, sometimes the level of insensitivity to parents who have a moral base that comes from the scripture related to the books that are assigned in some of these AP classes this is horrible. Who wants to have your kid going and reading about graphically about rapes and about sexual crime? And yet they're allowed to go through. And there's the liberal element of that whole side of things that pushes the thing through with this insensitivity toward the Bible and even the warnings of the Bible. And yet there's the money, there's the money, there's the money, there's the money, there's the funding of of, uh, that, that comes in and it looks like for 40 years since the 60s that this is never going to catch up, never going to catch up, never going to catch up, never going to catch up. And we come to 2011 and it's caught up. And now it's a choice between schools and prisons. Did God know what he was talking about in the 1950s and the 1960s when the things of God were removed from the public square and he's warning there's problems with that. And now you look at the average teacher, and I feel so sorry for them. What they have to do on top of their job that's assigned to them is a part of their job description. You don't need to tell them. I don't need to tell you how much time is spent managing the behavior of a group of people who have been raised now in a nation where God's standard has been largely kept from them. And then you throw all of the other problems on top. My point is, God knows what he's talking about. You cannot fight against him, his wisdom. You cannot reject him. You cannot scorn him with impunity. This thing, you reap what you sow. And, and it, you come to reap it one day. And we see the very same thing today. And ultimately, the future of the nation, if the Lord uh, is to tarry is the unrighteousness will continue to bleed this nation as it will bleed any nation in the world. There's not enough wealth to offset a population and the consequences of a population whose heart is set on evil and unrighteousness. And ultimately, everybody comes down to such a low point and the standard of living and what we're willing to, what's going on in the streets, what's going on in our neighborhoods, what's happening. Ultimately, it collapses to a place where people look at it and say, enough, enough with man's definitions of right and wrong. Let's go back to common sense. No, let's go back to something that's better than common sense. Let's go back to conscience. Let's go back to the word of God and let's try that out again. And then pretty soon prosperity returns. Sanity returns. Safety returns to a society. And so these are the kind of things that we see going on uh, uh, around us. God's word, it's timeless in terms of how it applies. Chapter 19. And it happened after this that Nahash, I love you school teachers, by the way. I'm not picking on you. This is the, you see the structure. You're in it. You understand it. It happened after this that Nahash, the king of the people of Ammon, Died, And his son reigned in his place. And David said, I will show kindness to Hanan, the son of Nahash, because his father showed kindness to me. 
Somewhere in David's reign, uh, or during the period of David's life, when he was fleeing from Saul in the wilderness, this particular uh, king here, uh, Nahash, um, did something kind to David. It's not recorded in the scriptures. But somehow he did something kind uh, to protect his life, to maybe supply food or refuge or whatever it was. And David never forgot that kindness that was done to him. And so here is the death now of the old man. And now the son is becoming the king. These were always kind of, um, uh, you know, transitions in government. Or, and especially in the ancient world where you weren't able to vote people out every two years or four years or six years like we can in our government. People come into office in those days, become the king. They might be the king for 55 years. So there's a lot going on in that time of transition. And the king who uh, was the new king, his father had just died, he wouldn't be sure whether the nations that were surrounding him uh, would honor the treaties that his father had entered into. Everything was kind of uh, open. He, he was unsure of his relationship now with all of his neighbors. Would they attack him? Would they be friendly? So David understands all of this. He's a king himself. So the father dies and David sends a delegation of what would obviously be some of his most powerful men, some of his best friends, very influential men, to go to the son and let him know that we know that your father has died here. We know that you're a new king here, little wet behind the ears and all, but you don't have to worry about Israel. We're not going to attack you. We want to continue the same relationship with you that we had with your father. And so this was the intent of, of David behind this um, uh, sending of this, this delegation in order to uh, comfort. And so David sent messengers, verse 2, to comfort him concerning his father. The idea was comforting him. And David's servants came to Hanun in the land of the people of Ammon in order to comfort him. And then the princes of the people, the counselors, uh, of Ammon, they said to the new king, Hanan, do you really think that David honors your father because he has sent comforters to you? Did he not, did his servants not come to search and to overthrow and spy out the land? That whole sending comfort to comforters to you and all, that's a lie. This is treachery. He's come to spy out the land because he's going to come in and invade it and he's going to uh, conquer you. And so this was the suspicion that they planted into the mind, these counselors did, uh, into the uh, mind of, of the new King And so this uh, Hanan then, as they make this input into his mind, he's vulnerable to the thinking and obviously it appeals to him. And so therefore David, I mean Hanan, he took David's servants, he shaved them and cut off their garments in the middle at the buttocks and he sent them away. So these judges or these uh, counselors of, of Hanan, they misjudge uh, David and uh, they basically they're taking the wickedness of their own heart. They, what, this is what they would have done. They wouldn't have sent comforters. They would have sent, you know, spies in to now uh, destroy. And, and so this is the suspicions that they've they've put in Hanan's heart. And then Hanan gives this. Uh, uh, listening to the council, then shames David's men in, in this way. Again, you have to understand, this would be a shame to do to any man in the ancient world. These men had to have been, in David sending them this position, must have been just immensely spiritual, uh, men of great stature, great reputation. And they shut, shave off, we're told in Second Samuel, they shaved off half the beard. Now, in the ancient world, a beard was a symbol of masculinity because men can grow them and women can't. So th what this was was an insult to their masculinity. And they basically would have been overpowered to be able to do that. We're going to shave off the symbol of your masculinity and there's nothing you can do about it. And then they cut off their robe at their buttocks, leaving them exposed from both front and behind and then shoved them out the door. Out into public, 
And imagine doing that to men like this. I mean, you could not put together a series of things intended to bring more shame on on a group of men than than what these these men did. It would be like having the president of the United States send our secretary of state to another country to assist them and having the secretary of state stripped and then sent out of the country naked. I mean, it would be a national insult to do that because these were men who came representing David, representing Israel, representing the nation in the way that ambassadors do. Now, I think that one of the things that this teaches us, and it's very important, and again uh, brought out in Second Samuel, but repeated, and I think necessarily so here in Verse Chronicles, surely this teaches us how important it is to us concerning who we make our counselors in life, who we make our influencers in life, who is it that we listen to for um, you know, how, wisdom on our decision making. And it's so important that we do not surround ourselves with people who are judgmental or overly suspicious or people that automatically think the worst of other people or they have a fault finding spirit. And they can, in fact, their fault finding spirit is so creative and so well defined, they can find a fault that doesn't exist in a person. And so this kind of thing is something we've got to be careful of in all of our lives or we're going to make terrible decisions on the basis of the influence of our peers. And that's nowhere more important than when it has to do with a leader because, of of course, it influences or affects so many people. So this is an absolute disaster. And so some went and then reported to David about the men, how they had been treated. And David, and this says a lot about David, He went to meet them because the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said to them, wait in Jericho. Jericho was kind of between Israel and uh, and the land of Ammon here. Allow them to regrow their beards and, and everything. Wait at Jericho till your beards have grown and then you can return into Israel. And so great sensitivity as he uh, advises them here and he didn't want. Jerusalem to see them in in their humiliation again in light of their stature and and the respect they ought to have been given as as godly men. Now, when the people of Ammon saw that they had made themselves repulsive to David, Hanan and the people of Ammon sent a thousand talents of silver for hire for themselves uh, and horsemen from Mesopotamia from Syria, Ma'akah, and from Zobah. Now, here's a fascinating thing that's happening here. At this point, they know they've done wrong. The king knows this was wrong counsel. This was a wrong thing to do. We've made a big mistake here. What you do when you misjudge a situation and it escalates and becomes messy like this, the way to solve that is to go to the person that we've sinned against and say, you know what? I completely misjudged you out of the suspicions and the wickedness of my own heart. I couldn't have been more wrong. And I ask for your forgiveness and I ask you to tell me what can I do for you to make this thing right. That's how you handle it. You can never make a wrong right by getting more people on your side, which is what they try to do. And so what happens when when we're wrong is to go to that person, make that confession, ask, how can I make this right with you? And that's a situation now where it's diffused and it's on its way to being solved out of pride, because we don't want to admit that we're wrong. The flesh is tempted to escalate the situation. And so they believe that what David is going to do in light of the greatness of the insult that they've done to his men is that David's going to come to war against them immediately. Again, they misjudge him. They take the evil in their own heart and they ascribe it to David. David has no intention at this point of attacking them. He's probably trying to figure out what in the world is going on here. 
I send these men. This is what they do. This doesn't make sense in heaven. It doesn't make sense on earth. I can't make heads or tails of this. What's going on? And it was a perfect window for someone to come in and apologize related to that. But that's not what happens. What they decide to do is now to draw other people into the conflict as their allies and to escalate the conflict. You see this kind of thing happen all the time in the body of Christ. You see it in the world all the time, too, but even the body of Christ, where somebody sins against another Christian. And they know they're wrong. And instead of listening to the conviction of the Holy Spirit and doing what is right to make that situation right, though it requires great humility to do that, They'll go over and they'll find out, okay, well, I'll go to this friend over here and secure their allegiance and this friend over here and I'll get uh, their allegiance and then I'll work this situation and the whole thing starts to manipulate and the thing escalates, it gets bigger, it gets bigger, it gets bigger until finally in this situation, 50,000 people are going to die because of the decision making here. They did not need to die caught in the crossfire of just numbskull pride. And, and so that same thing, again, happens in individual lives. All right, this happened over here. I'm going to make this phone call over here. I'm going to tweet over here, however all that stuff goes on. I'm going to go over, get this, and align this whole thing, and I'll build this, this case of, of alliances against this person over here. But if this person over here is right in God's eyes, this person is going to win. It may take six months. It may take six years. It may take 60 years. But this alliance that is aligned around a wrong thing, that's going to collapse. And you never be on, want to be on the wrong side of that. And so here is this, you, you cannot right a wrong by failing to admit that I'm wrong and humbling myself to, 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 to do right there. And so they make, they make ter- terrible mistakes here that are repeated all of the time. And so we have to be careful in our own lives related to this, because our first tendency can be in the flesh to do this kind of thing. And so they hired for themselves 32,000 chariots with the king of Maaka and his people who came and encamped before Medeba. And also the people of Ammon gathered together from their cities and they came to battle. Now, when David heard of it, again, he's not prepared for battle. This is, he's not looking for a war. He's trying to figure out what's happening. Well, when he hears that they're escalating for war, he sent Joab, who was his military commandment, and all the army of the mighty men of Israel. So he gathers his army. And then the people of Ammon, they came out and they put themselves in battle array before the gate of the city. And the kings who had come uh, were by themselves in the field, these allies among the Syrians, they came. And Joab, when he saw the battle line, was against him, not only in front of him, but behind him. He had the Syrians in front of him. He had the Ammonites be, uh, behind him. He surrounded here his military force. And uh, he chose some of Israel's best, and he put them in battle array against the Syrians. He recognized these are the mercenaries. These guys are paid to fight. If we can break their back early in the battle, they'll be most likely to flee rather than the Ammonites. And so he put his best against them in order to bring a quick, decisive strike against them. And the rest of the people he put under the command uh, of Abishai, his brother, and they set themselves in battle array against the people of Ammon. And then he said to his brother, if the Syrians are too strong for me, then you come and help me. But if the people of Ammon are too strong for you, then I will help you. And I think it was Napoleon who said, uh, and every military commander in history, anyone in the, in, the, in the military period learns it sooner or later, but he's paraphrasing him, was that all battle plans go out the window the moment the battle starts. And so here is Joab. He understands it from 3,000 years ago that, hey, this is the plan. But whatever happens, let's be looking out for each other here. And, and so this was the unity, the plan. And then verse 13, very beautiful. We don't always get a lot of spirituality out of Joab. Uh, we get a lot of uh, um, testosterone. And, uh, you know, 
kind of strength and that kind of a deal. But it's always I always like to take note of it when we get it from him. He said, be of good courage and let us be strong for our people and for the cities of our God. And and so this is the motive. We're fighting for a greater motive here now for the existence of our people. If we get defeated in this battle, they'll come and and crush uh, our, our women and our children in the land. And then he said, may the Lord do what is good in his sight. Maybe you've heard the old saying, do your best and commit the rest. And the idea is do your best as unto the Lord and then commit the rest to him. And the Lord will take care of that. And I don't think you can find a better biblical encapsulation of that truth then right there, may the Lord do what is good in his sight. We're going to do our best and commit the rest to the Lord. Beautiful faith on Joab's part. And so Joab and the people who were with him, they drew near for the battle against the Syrians and the Syrians fled before him. And when the people of Ammon saw that the Syrians were fleeing, they also fled before Abishai, his brother, and they then entered into the city and uh, evidently a walled city. And so Joab pulled off from the battle and went to Jerusalem. Now, when the Syrians saw that they had been defeated by Israel, now their pride is tweaked and they sent messengers and they brought the Syrians who were beyond the river and Shopak, the commander of Hadadezer's army, went before them. So they decided, all right, you punched us in the nose. Forget about the Ammonites. We declare war on you. And when it was told Ammon, uh, when it was told uh, David, he gathered all Israel, crossed over the Jordan, came upon them and set up in battle array against them. And so when David had set up in battle array against the Syrians, they fought with him. And then the Syrians fled before Israel. David killed 7000 charioteers, 40,000 foot soldiers of the Syrians and killed uh, Shaphak the uh, commander of the army. And when the servants of Hadad Ezer saw that they were defeated by Israel, they made peace with David and became his servants. And so the Syrians were not willing to help uh, the people of Ammon anymore. <laughs> it's a beautiful uh, gift for understatement. <laughs> There's a lesson learned. Chapter 20. It happened in the spring of the year, at the time that kings go out to battle, that Joab led out the armed forces and ravaged the country of the people of Ammon. And they came and they besieged Rabbah, the capital uh, of, of, uh, of Ammon. And, but David stayed in Jerusalem and Joab defeated Rabbah and overthrew it. So here we have in chapter 20, verse 1. Uh, the kind of the context for David's sin with Bathsheba and the death of Uriah the Hittite. So um, following that defeat of the Syrians and the Ammonites, um, the Joab in the time of the year that men went out to, to war, which was always the spring because the roads became dry enough now to transport troops and supplies. Also, there was more food to be able to eat to sustain a military force. So it was spring they would go out to fight. The battle against the Ammonites was unfinished. So uh, Joab wanted to go out with David's approval, obviously, to go out and finish up uh, uh, defeating them. They'd been defeated in battle, but there was still no humility. There was no apology. There was no making the thing right. So they were still represented in a, a threat to Israel's existence. And so they had to go clean things up. And so David or Joab is sent out to do that. They, the uh, military of Ammon goes uh, behind the walled city of Rabbah, which was their capital uh, city. It's the same city that's the capital of Jordan to this day um, and by a different name. So they went in. It's good to be inside, isn't it? <laughs> so they they went inside of, of there and probably all of this took a year or two, the siege and all, to ultimately break through the city. So this whole event of 
uh, David staying now. He's about 50 years old. He's not going out leading the forces in battle anymore. And he's um, relaxing. He spots Bathsheba, commits adultery, uh, arranges for Uriah's death. Uh, the child is born. All of these things are occurring during the siege of this city. So probably a year or two for all of that to take place. And, uh, and, and um, uh, so that kind of lays the foundation for it. Again, interestingly, sometimes people will read First Chronicles and they'll say, oh, yeah, the writer of First Chronicles must have been like a, a relative of David. I mean, they left out all of his sin and his failure here. Again, it's a different audience that's being addressed through First uh, Chronicles. The post-exilic pilgrims that were returning from the Babylonian captivity of the Jews, they didn't need to they didn't need to learn a lesson at this point of how bad the consequences of sin were. They're just coming out of 70 years of bondage and captivity in Babylon. What they needed to know was that there was hope on the other side of failure. In, in a walk with God. And so God doesn't take and lay the whole thing out. They were very familiar with the history, but he does bring out a great message of hope for them, as, as we'll see in just a moment. And so word was sent back to David. We know from Second Samuel that uh, concerning the fact that the city was ready to be overthrown. Uh, Joab, very commendable man and his loyalty to David. He didn't want to conquer the city and have everybody in history write it down that Joab conquered the city. He wanted David's name to be associated with the victory. So he called David out to lead the final kind of uh, uh, move against the city. And, and David did that. They defeated the king and the city. And David then took their king's crown from his head and found it to weigh a talent of gold. That's 75 pounds. So this is clearly a ceremonial crown. Otherwise, if you had a 75-pound crown, you just would have to be like uh, a middle linebacker, you know, in the NFL or something to be able to stabilize that. And, and so the guy lost his crown. Hey, praise the Lord for crowns you can't lose. Crown we're going to have in heaven, you know. You can't be captured by anybody else. And so here he, uh, he gets that, weighs a talent of gold, and there were precious stones in it as well. It was set on David's head kind of ceremonially, probably with, you know, staves and all put there and then taken off. And uh, also David brought out the spoil of the city in great abundance. And he brought out the people who were in it, and he put them to work with saws and iron picks and with axes. So he made slaves out of, out of uh, the Ammonites and put them to kind of civil projects and all for the betterment of, of Israel. And so David did to all of the cities of the people of Ammon, and then David and all the people returned to Israel. And so the lesson for the returning post-exilic Jews here was the... the uh, the reassurance that God honors repentance and that when David repented of his sin with Bathsheba and his sin with Uriah the Hittite, that God still had a ministry for him to do on the other side of that, that there was hope there. And so they would have read, you know, all of this and, and realized that God continued to bless David despite his faults and his failures uh, with his repentance. And so just because we've gone into captivity to the Babylonians for 70 years doesn't mean God doesn't have plans for us and for our lives to make an impact for uh, for the Lord. And so this would have been a great encouragement to them to be reminded of David in this vein. Now, it happened after that. It happened afterward that war broke out at Gezer with the Philistines, at which time uh, Shibakai, the uh, Hush, uh, Hushathite, killed uh, Sippai, who was one of the sons of the giant, probably Goliath, and they were subdued. And so here's a record of David's further fighting against um, the Philistines. The Philistines were kind of the ongoing thorn in the flesh to the children of Israel. Um, David had already defeated them twice decisively. They ceased to be a threat to Israel, but these uh, boys of the giant, you know, David had killed their father, and uh, so they still wanted to pick a fight, and so they end up being uh, dying in battle one after the other. Verse 5, again there was war with the Philistines, and Elhanan, the son of Jair, killed uh, uh, Lami, the brother of Goliath, the Gittite, 
the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. In other words, this was a gigantic guy with big weapons, and another one bites the dust. Yet again, there was war at Gath, and where there was a man of great stature. Not only was he also, he's going to be a son of, of Goliath as well, but this guy was born with 24 fingers and toes. So he had six on one, each hand, uh, six uh, toes on each foot, and he was born to the giant. And so it's not unusual in the ancient world, not unusual today. Today, where somebody is born with six fingers or six toes, they're removed pretty early on um, in order for people to kind of look normal with everything else. But so here, there was the note, though. Here's this giant, and he's got... Uh, you know, 24 fingers and toes. I mean, just one more thing to look at and go, wow, you know, we're going to get killed, you know. And um, but uh, then the eyes on the Lord, who is greater than even 24 fingers and toes. And so when he defied Israel, Jonathan, the son of uh, Shemia, David's brother, killed him. And these were born to the giant in Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his uh, servants. Chapter 21. Now Satan stood up against Israel and moved uh, David to uh, number uh, Israel. Now, in this um, opening verse of, uh, of the passage here, um, we're told here that Satan stood up against Israel and it was Satan that tempted David to number Israel. Um, we're told in the parallel passage in Second Samuel chapter 24 that God moved David to number the people, but he did so only in the sense that he allowed Satan uh, the room to tempt David. David is going to fail here. He's going to sin uh, here, not because God forced him to, but because of the sin of his own heart. And God knew that the devil would quickly spot his pride and take advantage of it. And David is going to fall because of his pride here. You know, there's nothing that is more easy for the devil to manipulate in the life of a Christian than pride, really in, in any life, but I'm talking to Christians tonight. And one of the reasons that the devil is able to manipulate pride so easily is the first thing that pride does in our lives is it blinds us to our pride. So we're unaware that we're lifted up in pride. So it's like Satan has this whole big freeway to run us over with a truck with because we're completely oblivious. We're too proud at the moment to realize we're being proud. And I, I trust that almost all, I hope I'm not alone in this room to understand the sensation of pride and uh, the, the silliness of it and, and the emotion and the feeling of it uh, to feel proud related to something. And, and so the devil really can use, he can use that pride. And, and, and sometimes we can look at it and say, well, wow, if I get lifted up in pride and pride disables my ability to recognize my pride and nothing so easy to manipulate as pride in the hands of the devil, what's our protection? Word of God, the mirror of the word of God to reveal pride in our life, the ministry of the Holy Spirit to just come along and say, Hey, buckaroo, <laughs> all right, you had a good time there, and I used you and all, but uh, let's keep yourself in perspective, or however he has to do that, the voice of the Spirit to warn us, or even in a phone call, dealing with a loved one to come in and say, don't you make that phone call till I get a chance to deal with your pride here, or you're going to make a bigger mess than this thing already is. Another way that God deals with with our pride and helps us to become aware of it is how God is going to try and do it in David's life. But David is going to ignore it. And that is when other people that are godly people try to speak into David's life and say, David, this is not a good idea. You shouldn't do this. And when you get either the word of God rising up and exposing our pride or the Holy Spirit convicting us of pride or people that we love and respect and have a history with spiritually coming and warning us. These are great defenses against pride in our lives and in our ministry. And I suppose that uh, maybe some of you in this room are completely, you know, freed from this thing called pride. But most of us have to deal with it when God uses us in some uh, little way. I mean, if God uses me in a, 
in a private conversation. I want to go out and have badges made. God uses me in private conversations and have a, a letter jacket with it written across the back and, and walk in a parade. Not, I mean, not so that everyone will know, but just so they can know to who to come, come to when, when they need help. So this is what I have to deal with. Maybe you don't have to deal with that kind of stuff. So this is what uh, he's the uh, mix that he's in. Now, in this chapter, and it's important for us to uh, study this a little bit, especially at the introduction, with an understanding of the parallel account there in First Samuel chapter 24, because here we have a, a plot and a subplot that's going on. God is going to deal with David's pride. Uh, because he wants to and he needs to. But there is a larger plot that's occurring here at this particular point in time, which we're made aware of in in uh, in Second Samuel, chapter 24, verse one. Let me read it to you. And again, the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel and he moved David against them to say, go and number Israel and Judah. So for some reason, there is, God is upset with the children of Israel here. It's not declared to us in the scripture why he's upset, but he wants to judge them. He wants to chasten them for some reason. The probably the most educated guess for why God is upset with the children of Israel at this point in time is that this event occurs following Absalom's rebellion against David. When Absalom, David's son, led that rebellion, David had to flee for his life. God had to stand in and preserve David and all. So you had just huge numbers of people that were, were a part of the nation of Israel, part of the capital there in Jerusalem, who had sided with Absalom. Their influence was a detrimental influence to the nation and to David's continue, uh, continued reign and even possibly to Solomon's reign, which was to follow it. So God had some things that he knew that he needed to deal with. So he's going to knock out two things at the same time here. Another reason that God could have been desiring to bring a very specific strategic judgment upon the children of Israel at this time might have been also because of wickedness in people's lives. Again, we sometimes can read about the era of David's reign and think everybody walked with the Lord 100 percent. It was the golden age. But that wasn't true. David walked with the Lord. A lot of people walked with the Lord. But there were a lot of wicked people among God's people who were seeking his death. They were seeking his misfortune. Uh, they were uh, wicked in their dealings. They were wicked in their sin. And so it could very well be that God decided to step in and kind of purge things um, a, a little bit. And so Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. And so David said to Joab, and to the leaders of the people, go and number Israel from Beersheba to Dan, from the south to the north, and bring the number of them to me that I may know it. And Joab answered and said, may the Lord make his people a hundred times more than they are. But my Lord, the king, are they not all my Lord's servants? Why then does my Lord require this thing? Why should he be a cause of guilt in Israel. Joab, uh, for all of his carnality, he gets that this is wrong and he doesn't want anything. He doesn't want to do it, doesn't want anything to do, anything to do with this numbering of the people. Nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab. We know also in Second Samuel that all of David's uh, great men were also opposed to this decision of David and they voiced their opinion. Uh, David kind of just rolled over it. And, and so, nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab, and therefore Joab departed, and he went throughout all Israel, and, they, and then counting, and then came to Jerusalem. And then Joab gave the number, uh, the sum of the number of the people to David. All Israel had 1,100,000 men who drew the sword. Judah in the south had 470,000 men who drew the sword. But Joab did not count Levi and Benjamin among them, for the king's word was abominable to him. So he might have said, I'm not going to count the Levites because they don't fight in the military anyway. And I'm not going to fight. I'm not going to count 
uh, the tribe of Benjamin because I'm just done. I'm going to take him these, <laughs> these numbers. So Joab really hated doing what he was uh, doing here. Now, the interesting thing, and it gives us insight into uh, what is uh, going on here. Well, let me go a little bit further on it. And God was displeased with this thing, and therefore he struck Israel. And so David said to God, I have sinned greatly because I have done this thing. It took him ten months to figure out it was the wrong thing, but God blessed him. He did it. But now he said, I pray, take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done foolishly. It's important to notice that this um, census that was taken was a military census. It was not a counting of all of the people, but it was a counting of the, those that uh, could be called upon to be a part of the military force within the land. And so David is wanting to know what that number is. Apparently, what David is slipping into in all of this is after all of the success with God, and now here is Israel, here is Jerusalem, here is the prosperity, here is the everything, and they have in general peace and quiet. He, he is going to now count the size of his military as a, um, uh, and, and in, in viewing and counting his military, he is viewing them as, and the size of the military as the source of security for the nation rather than God. And it tells us again in Second Samuel that when David confesses to the Lord here that he was convicted in his heart. There was nothing wrong with doing a census technically. But David realized he had done this census for a wrong reason. And what he was slipping in his thinking was to thinking we are secure as a nation in the danger of this world on the basis of the size of our military rather than in our faith and our relationship with God. That's the mistake that he made. And because he called for this military census to be such a public thing, he was modeling that before the people. And the reason that Joab was so upset about it and the reason that the other uh, generals and part of David's military were so upset uh, about this is that when they were nothing, when they were, David wasn't even the king yet, when they just had 400 mighty men that were with David, and then it enlarged to 600, and they won victory after victory after victory after victory, and the reason that they won these victories was because their security, their uh, uh, victories were not based upon the size of their military, but on the basis of their relationship with God. And so now here he is, he's modeling something different. The very thing, and it comes at the expense of God's glory here. God had made them great. God had made them secure. And then now David is starting to give this little bit of a hint that it was our military, it was our doing, it was our strength. And this displeased the Lord. And the Lord works and he does miracles in our lives and he does great things in our lives and he even prospers our lives. He wants to receive the glory and be acknowledged in that and not for us then to look at, at what we have now and say, OK, this is why I'm secure, because I've walked with God all of these years. He's prospered me. And this is what my bank account is or this is what my retirement program is, rather than looking and saying all of that could take wings and fly tonight. Before any of us get home and can turn on the Internet and find out, find out what happened in the world while we were at church, everything could be gone. That's the way the world is. So our security is in the Lord. That's the only place of security. The funny thing about the Lord is, is and this is a temptation on all of our parts, to one degree or another, to look at the material things as a source of our security. And the Lord knows that there's no peace in that. And so he's going to come and he's going to chasten David to move him back from that and make David realize, no, your future is assured. Your future is a sure future because I'm in charge of your future, not because 
of anything you've accumulated through the years or my past blessing upon your life. Again, these are lessons that are so important on a national level for him, on a personal level for him, on a personal level for us as well. And so David, he confesses his sin. And then the Lord spoke to Gad, uh, David's seer, or spiritual advisor, saying, Go and tell David, saying, Thus says the Lord, I offer you three things. Choose one of them for yourself that I may do it. And so Gad came to David, said to him, Thus says the Lord, choose for yourself. Here's the, here's the chastisement for, for what you've done. Either three years of famine in the land, Three months to be defeated by your foes with the sword of your enemies overtaking you, or else three days of the sword of the Lord, the plague in uh, the plague in the land with the angel of the Lord destroying throughout all the territory of Israel. Now consider which of the three what your answer will be, and I'll take it back to the Lord who sent me. And David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Please let me fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great. None of these three decisions look great to me, but I don't want to fall into the hands of merciless men. I want to fall into the hands uh, of, uh, of God because his mercies are great. Do not let me fall into the hand of uh, man. I don't want man in charge of my future. I want God in charge of my future, even if that means chastisement. And so the Lord sent a plague upon Israel and 70,000 men of Israel fell again. I have no person. I have no doubt that this is a very strategic uh, focus of God upon a particular portion of the population that He was uh, aware of, that He wanted to uh, chasten and to judge, and that and God sent an angel to Jerusalem to destroy it as He was uh, destroying. And again, Jerusalem was the center of the rebellion against. David, and as he, the angel was destroying, the Lord looked and relented of the disaster, and he said to the angel who was destroying, It's enough, now restrain your hand. And the angel of the Lord stood by the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. For those of you who have been to Israel, this is the area of the Temple Mount, that, that this threshing floor outside of Jerusalem existed. And then David, he lifted up his eyes. He saw the angel of the Lord standing between earth and heaven, having his hand in his hand, a drawn sword stretched out over Jerusalem. And so David and the elders, as they saw this instrument of judgment, they clothed themselves in sackcloth and they fell on their faces, as it demonstrating their repentance and sorrow. And then David said to God, was it not I who commanded the people to be numbered? And I am the one who has sinned and done evil indeed. But these sheep, what have they done? Let your hand, I pray, O Lord my God, be against me and my father's house, but not against your people that they should be plagued. So David's prayer is very commendable and that he looks at it and he says, all of this is happening because of me. He doesn't know the full story that God is dealing with him, but he's also dealing with the nation. And so his prayer is a wonderful prayer and that it reflects the softness of his heart, but he's misguided in his prayer too. It's so funny, you know, there's so there's so little we know about God's dealings in the world and what we just we just can see there's a little tiny part of it. And then we come to the conclusions like we know this much about what he's doing. I've been reading the book of Job in the last couple of days. And these guys just, it, you know, God was doing this very specific thing. And all of Job's friends and even Job himself began to, they looked at it and they didn't even get what God was doing. And they began to ascribe all these other things to the events until they had the whole thing figured out. And God was doing all of this, none of which he was doing in terms of the, the reasons behind what was happening. And so here is David. He looks at it. He sees it through this little lens. He assumes that that's all there is to what God is doing here. And so he tries to fix it that way. He, and I guess the point that I, I think about related to this is this. So often people will, will find ourselves in a difficult place. 
And it just looks so obvious that this is about what I did or I didn't do or God is doing this here. And if I just do this, then everything will be changed and all right. And if we really knew the truth about it, God's doing that and about a hundred other things at the same time that have absolutely nothing to do with us. And so people, they start to second guess God. They begin to lose their faith in God. Um, they begin to take pot shots. That's what's really happening. They try to understand and then completely misunderstand what's happening. Rather than in the little circumstance that we're in, taking that little piece of my life, testing it by the scriptures, applying the scriptures to that, and then walking by faith with God, and then letting him take care of the situation, and then all of the other things that he's taking care of at the same time, and then we don't get all messed up. I hope that made sense, some sense to somebody, because it made great sense to me, and I was greatly blessed by it. Thank you very much. But that's the truth of it. God's doing so much more, and we want to try and say it's all this, and we don't know. Just walk by faith and watch the thing unfold. And so here we are in verse 18, and the story continues. But we're going to take a commercial break that involves seven days, and we'll pick it up there. Because what happens here is significant related to the rest of the Old Testament, and I just don't want to hurry uh, through it. So we'll stop there, and we'll pick it up in chapter 18. next week. Let's stand together. The worship team come forward. That'd be great. If you're here tonight and for whatever reason and you are not yet a Christian, you have never put your faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. You need to do that tonight. So you've been in a part of a church service and we worship the Lord together and you listen to that and uh, teaching of the Bible. Hopefully that's been, at least you look at it and you say, well, okay, I thought the Bible couldn't be understood. I understood half of what he was saying tonight. So that's a good, a good step. So you've been in the middle of just seeing how God works among his people. But that's not how we get to heaven. We get to heaven by trusting in the Lord personally for the forgiveness of our sins. And there are going to be men and women up in front immediately after the service. They're going to have a badge on that says prayer so you can identify them easily. And they'd love to pray with you tonight to begin that relationship with the Lord. And it's all there for the asking, all there for the receiving this evening. Of course, if you need prayer for anything this evening, they'd love to pray with you and to pray for you. Let's pray now. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for all of the lessons that are found in it. We thank you for how timeless your word is, how it, nothing changes. It's just in what culture, what technologies, what this and all those things do change, Lord. But man doesn't change and our need to hear your voice doesn't change. Your wisdom in, in how it applies and how important it is that, that it applies to human lives and that we obey your word, that doesn't change. And we just thank you for being able to receive the instruction of your word tonight and receive its washing, to receive the perspective that it brings to our lives, the mirror that it is to our lives, Lord. Thank you so much for your word and the work of your Holy Spirit through it. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Mike, would you close us?